Welcome to the Insightful Player Podcast with your host, Chrissy Carew. In each episode, Chrissy interviews NFL players and other professional athletes to help transform our culture to be inclusive, kinder, and more loving. We hope to turn everyone into insightful players in their own lives. Chrissy is also the author of the book, Insightful Player, featuring over a dozen stories where football pros lead a bold movement of hope. You can learn more about her book, Chrissy's coaching programs, and more episodes of this show at www.theinsightfulplayer.com. You can also watch other episodes on YouTube and listen through all the major podcast platforms. Now, here's the host of Insightful Player, Chrissy Carew. Welcome to the Insightful Player Podcast. My name is Chrissy Carew, and I'm a business and life coach, as well as the founder of Insightful Player. I originally created Insightful Player in 2009 because I was worried sick about kids and role models falling down left and right. Partnered with NFL players um, who are doing amazing things in the world and who reach their dreams of playing in the NFL in spite of some amazing obstacles they were up against. So they too want all of you to know, and especially kids, that you can, you can overcome any obstacles and reach your dream, no matter what circumstance you're in. So we brought Insightful Player back so we can transform our culture to be more inclusive, kinder, and a lot more loving. And today we have on a very special guest, Kevin Riley. Kevin Riley is one of the very first NFL players I met when I started in Cycle Player. My God, his story is going to inspire you. It's still inspiring me. Kevin played for the Eagles, and his, he also played, started off with, in Miami and ended up with the Patriots, but it's mostly with the Eagles. But his career came to a screeching halt because he discovered he had cancer, and um, he lost his left arm, a good part of his shoulder, and in several ribs. And most people would say, that's it, I'm done. Uh, you know, I give up on life. The opposite happened with Kevin. And it wasn't easy, but his recovery is enormously inspiring. And we're going to get into more detail about that. And now he's um, also an author, a professional speaker, and he's also a broadcaster. And his book, is right here, Tackling Life. I highly recommend it. And we're going to talk about that as well. It's, it's a must read. You can't put it down. So, Kevin, welcome back. So nice to see you. Chrissy, so nice to reconnect with you. And you're right. Uh, you're one of the first people to, uh, reached out to me years ago when we started the Insightful Player. And I'm just great to see how it's grown since then with all of the efforts you put in. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I appreciate that. And everyone tells me how much they love your story. So I still get that today, even though the book came out in 2012. Oh, no, 2011. So you're still inspiring souls all over the place. So thank you for that. You're welcome. It's, it's been a really nice journey. I've met a lot of nice people. And it's amazing to me, Chrissy, the feedback I get from the book and it's made me understand that sometimes when you're, you know, I'm doing my one of my motivational talks, you look out there and there might be 40 people or there might be 400. But on any given day, there's a handful of them, I'll say a percentage of them, somewhere probably between five and seven percent that are really having bad days. And probably a couple of them that are sitting there 
weren't even in the room initially when I started talking mentally, you know, they just weren't there. They were there physically, but not mentally because they were, you know, dwelling on the problem at hand. And we all have them as we go through life. And somewhere along the line, you know, you don't know, you couldn't pick those people out from looking at them walking in the door. But at the end of uh, my speeches, I'll get 10 to 12 people just lined up telling me their quick story. And they're very good about it. It's amazing. They know there's a line of people. They don't take an abundance of time, but they just want to let you know, hey, you did something for me today. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most fulfilling experiences. And then when I get in the car and I go home, it's also very humbling. Somebody would say, well, that's got to really lift your spirits and your ego. Well, it does lift my spirits. But when I get in the car, I think, oh, my goodness, I just, you know, touched the lives of a couple of people that had much worse situations than I did, yet they got something out of me and I got something from them, uh, them telling me, because it makes me feel blessed at times to know that you got to put things in perspective. As bad as my situation looked at one time, it's not bad at all now. And I look at some of these people that have much longer trials and tribulations in life than I did, and I'm humbled by that. So it's been a great experience. It's been a learning experience. And I got to say, it's one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever had. Well, we're very blessed to have you out there, you know, um, lifting people up. And I think it might be a really good time um, to let people know your story. So let's start from the beginning of what you shared with me, um, um, because it's just incredible. You know, you're playing, you know, here you are, you're, you got to play in your dream team, the Eagles, which was your boyhood team. And there you are in, on special teams. And you were the captain of special teams as well, weren't you? Correct, yes. Yeah. I remember just as a joke, I, you used to tell me that, that the special teams was like blue collar of the, of the team. Um, no, it was guys, no joke. They were. <laughs> yeah, and you guys worked really hard. And, um, but that was just like, it must have been amazing. What was it like to walk out of that tunnel the very first time? Well, leading up to the tunnel, you know, and I look back now, I was drafted by the world champion Miami Dolphins in 1973, and they were coming off not only a Super Bowl, but they won every game in the NFL season, the last team to do that. And that's an incredible accomplishment. And just recently, I've looked back because I went to the Hall of Fame um, in induction in Canton this year because Harold Carmichael, a player that I played with with the Eagle wide receiver, great wide receiver, was getting inducted to the Hall of Fame. And I wanted to go out to support him and be with the other alumni out there. We had a great time. And on the way back, it dawned on me, I never counted the number of Hall of Famers that I was in uh, camp with for 12 weeks with the Miami Dolphins. They had six. Wow. And I thought, I thought, number one, no wonder I got released as the last guy from that team. That was a tough <laughs> team to make. But the other thing is I realized what I learned in that camp because of the athletic talent that was there and because of the direction and the way they hustled and all that stuff that goes into making a winner. They had come off winning a Super Bowl and they were determined to win another. And they did. They won back to back Super Bowls. So you look back and you say, boy, I, I wasted 12 weeks in Miami in this terrible heat, getting beat up by these veterans because I was a rookie. And look what it got me. But as I look back now, it was a blessing in disguise. How much did I learn? It made me prepared that when I went with the when I went to the Eagles, I was almost playing immediately because of all that I had learned down there and it raised my level of play. 
Then playing with the Eagles, you know, I get to play with the hometown team. Wow, that was really cool for two and a half years. And then I end up up in New England. I get waived and they pick me up on waivers. And I played the last six games of the 1975 season with the New England Patriots. And Chrissy, I wanted you to know something. When I get introduced now and they say I played the New England Patriots, the last two years, I've been there's been booze in the audience. And I, have, <laughs> and I have to remind them that I played with the with the New England Patriots before they started cheating. So I want that to be known as a fact. <laughs> I'm going to pick you up on that one. <laughs> so anyway, it was a great experience, a childhood dream come true, not only to play in the NFL, but to play with the Philadelphia Eagles. And I played two and a half years with them. And I still feel, you know, connected bloodwise to the Philadelphia Eagles because they were the team I grew up with. Uh, I've made so many brothers as friends on that team. And Gosh, when we went out to when we went out to Canton, I can't tell you how much fun we had. And here's another thing: as you get older, Chrissy, is that you realize how special people have been in your life and were in your life. And you know, at 25 years old, when I'm playing with the Eagles, you didn't ever say to a guy in the locker room, "Hey, man, I love you." But you know, there's a different thing. You know, when you get into your 60s and your early 70s, where you can't leave a guy without giving him a hug and saying. Hey man, I love you. And it gets back. Hey, I love you too. And it's, and it's sincere. It's not one of those things. It's, you know, just a salutation goodbye or whatever. It's really sincere. And it's beginning to hurt a little bit as I see some of these guys, you know, passing away. Um, you don't think it's ever going to happen to some of these great athletes, but it does. Yeah, that, that is tough, you know, um, and the, the older we get, the more that happens with people we care about, right. unfortunately. So what was it like just to, to, to run out on the field the very first time with the Eagles? Surreal, actually surreal. You know, the very first time was the exhibition games or the preseason games, as they call them now, with the Dolphins. And to see, be in the Orange Bowl, which was a stadium that was bigger than anything I ever played uh, with at Villanova, with the exception of maybe West Virginia uh, and maybe Houston, they had, uh, you know, seating capacities of over 50,000. But to see that many people in the stands and, of course, coming off the Super Bowl season, when we came out on the field, you know, there was just goosebumps from, this, from the cheers. I had never heard anything that loud until the Monday night football game that I played against the Dallas Cowboys with, with the Eagles. And there's something about that that just sends an adrenaline rush through you that I cannot compare it to. Uh, there's no other thing that's ever happened to me where I can compare that positive adrenaline rush. We all get adrenaline rushes when we're in fear or in trouble, but the positive in, in adrenaline rush and never was it ever so dominant as when they introduced the special teams before that Monday night football game against the Cowboys. And, you know, I can remember getting introduced as the last guy because I was captain of the team. And I, I don't even remember my feet hit me AstroTurf. It was like I glided out the 10 guys that were setting personal high jump records because the adrenaline, the, the, the hair was standing on the, you know, on my neck when I got out there and we were just pumped up and almost wore ourselves out in the pregame activities. And we went on to win that game 13 to 10 with a last minute field goal with three seconds left. It made it even more special, you know, and there's that old saying, you have 15 minutes of fame and that was it getting uh, the 13 to 10 victory over our nemesis who had beaten us, I think eight straight times on Monday night football. I tell everybody, 
I was 25 years old. I weighed 235 pounds. I was healthy. I could bench press 400 pounds. And that night, every girl I ever dated was watching TV. So I mean, <laughs> I, it was one of those really crazy, crazy nights that you say you just would like to hold on forever, but you can't. And right. then as well as those highs are, we have the lows in life. And, you know, it was a few years later that I, I it participated in one of those real lows. Yes. And um, Kevin, can you tell us more about that when you found out you had cancer? Yeah, from from playing in the NFL, um, you know, one of the things that happens to you when you're a second string player and I was back up to all the linebacker positions and all three teams that I played for. But I was a starter on special teams. And when you are not a first stringer, when you are not a guy that can, you know, uh, make a difference every week in the game, although we try, um, you are expendable. And so many of us that were second string players, and especially the special teams, um, many of us had a lot of injuries that we did not disclose. Because if they had maybe taken you to the right doctor, which didn't happen often either, but if somebody said you're going to have to go on injured reserve, you will probably not be back on the team. It would be the end of your career because somebody else, aggressive, waiting for their opportunity, would be able to step up and take your place. So I had this injury that I got, and it was in my rotor cuff area, and I kept playing with it because I could. It was in my left shoulder. And what I didn't realize that every week my regular body would go to try to heal that area, and every Sunday I would tear it open on special teams. Uh, <clears throat> hitting the wedge when we don't, when I was a wedge buster and we had to run our bodies into four grown men that were usually the offensive uh, line people and try to take two of them down. It was, they don't do that anymore. They got it. They made away with the wedge because of the injury rate for that particular play in sport, in uh, football that has caused so many injuries. I wouldn't be surprised in our lifetime. We'll see them do away with the whole kickoff because you got guys running as fast as they can, for 40 yards one way and the other way, and the collisions are getting worse and more injurious. So because of that, I kept tearing this, this uh, rotor cuff area open. And what happened is I had the unique ability, uh, one in a million, I had the DNA that I could form a scar tissue that was uh, turned into a tumor, a sarcoma, and it was called desmoid. And desmoid has one terrible <laughs> property. You would compare regular scar tissue to cotton if you had a shirt, and desmoid was like nylon. And the one thing, it was tougher, it was more fibrous, and it was trying to overcome the fact that the regular scar tissue wasn't getting the job done. However, it didn't know I was playing in the NFL, and I was tearing it open every week. It wasn't the body's fault. It was my fault. So one property of the desmoid tumor that is horrendous is it never stops growing. And what happens is it weaves its way around organs and blood supplies and nerves. And it then competes for, you know, um, space in the body. And it can crush other, you know, areas like your, your liver and your stomach and your lungs and things like that. So it can be a killer. And there was very, very little known about it because it's a rare sarcoma. So in order, I had, I had uh, four operations and the only way that they could save my life was to do a four-quarter amputation, which would require me losing my arm, my left shoulder, and four ribs. But that being said, 
Dr. Ralph Marco, the best orthopedic surgeon in the world up at Sloan Kettering Hospital by doing so, he saved my life. Now here's something that I know 40 years later from being on the foundation, on the board of the Desmoid Tumor Foundation, is that he could not have known about the microscopic cells that he couldn't see when they were kept sending stuff back to the lab to see if they had gotten all of the tumor because they weren't detectable then. Oh, wow. And there had to be, I had to have in that area with the size of the tumor I had, which was probably a little smaller than a volleyball. Okay. I, pro I had to have microscopic um, cells that were out there that they couldn't detect. Why am I here today? And I can only say that I'm here because <laughs> the man upstairs wanted me to be here. And after learning that that was probably the situation, that this is kind of a miraculous situation with me, you know, I decided it was my time to pay it forward, to give it back. And that's the reason that I'm still here today. Well, you're out there um, contributing so much to so many and you're saving lives. Um, you know, you're giving people hope that have none. It's very hard to live without hope. Um, and your road to get here hasn't been easy. You know, you also had a tough time, um, you know, back, you know, when you were after you retired from Xerox, or was it while you were working for Xerox where you decided to have wine just to relax? And then you ended up taking too many glasses of wine and had and ended up in AA. Another yep. courageous um, journey for you. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, you know, it started very, very simply. Um, I didn't start drinking until I went to college because my dad owned a liquor store and I knew if I ever got caught doing it, I could impact the entire business. And we had six kids in the family. I respected that. Uh, I probably saved some lives back then because I was all my high school buddies designated driver. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were no fun when they were three sheets of the wheel. I could tell you that. But um, we did get home safely. And then when I got to college, it was almost like you had to drink in order to get along and uh, didn't have any any problems with it until, you know, pro, uh, post-surgery when um, I still had phantom sensation, which feels like the arms there. Uh, I went back to work too quick. I created all of this outside pressure that I really didn't need. And so coming home at, home at night, I was a beer drinker and then I was a wine drinker. And then, you know, as they say, um, one glass wasn't was too many and 10 glasses wasn't enough. And uh, very, very simply, I was um, a, wor a working alcoholic. Uh, I didn't drink until I went home at night. Never, almost ever did I drink even in the company of clients when um when I was taking them out to lunch because I wanted to be sharp. I wanted to, you know, I had too much pride in making sure that I got the conversation over and I had to go back to work. I didn't want to go back into work smelling. Up. I didn't drink at all when I went to lunch I, and I didn't drink in the daytime. So you don't think of yourself as an alcoholic. And when you go to your first AA meeting and somebody looks at their watch and says, shaking, it'll be three more hours since I haven't had a drink in 24. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm not in this league. This is the NFL. I'm in the minor leagues of drinking, you know, and then another person gets up and says, I've now gone three months without having a fifth of vodka before 11 o'clock. Oh, are you kidding me? You know, oh. and these are these are the kind of people that stand up and tell their story. So even the first couple of times I went, I didn't think I had a serious problem. But 
if it's impacting your life, and it was, I was starting to have those hangovers in the morning where, you know, as somebody said, uh, the one thing they liked about drinking was they knew when they woke up at eight o'clock, uh, they were going to feel better at some point during the day. Most people who get up at eight o'clock, that's as good as they feel for the rest of the day. And that was something, you know, a joke to look forward to that you're going to get better at the end of the day. And so I took it seriously. Uh, my wife, Paula, was very, insp- you know, inspirational and, and, and helpful with it and said, I think you're drinking too much. And then I talked to some of my friends. They go, yeah, you could curb it down. So I decided I would quit. And I decided that um, after I quit. I was surprised at how much more energy I had, how much healthier I was, and how much, um, you know, on the ball I was with simple tasks and getting things done during the day. So it was one of those things, hard to admit, you know, that you're a recovering alcoholic. One of the toughest statements I've ever made is in an AA meeting when you stand up for the first time and say, hi, my name's Kevin, I'm an alcoholic. And boy, you know, and they say, hi, Kevin. And they get, at least you feel like you're part of a, uh, you know, a family of people, but it's hard to admit that it really is. But once you do, the rest becomes a little bit easier every day. Wow. Uh, you know, your will and determination and your, you know, you're like self-actualization guy. You're always reaching to better yourself and to be the best that you can be. And and that's, let's rewind again, back to after your surgery, when you had all those naysayers telling you, you couldn't tie a tie. You couldn't do any kind of sports. And um, and you and when you went back to work, you ended up joining the uh, racquetball team and did that for several years, right? Right. And and then you learned how to tie a tie like within a couple of months. Can you tell us more about that? That's all very inspiring. Yeah, you know, um, I, in my visits to Walter Reed, and I no longer do it just because. Um, I, I feel they need younger guys, but um, 20 years ago, I visited Walter Reed at the request uh, of our governor, who was a Navy retiree, Tom Carper, who's now in the Senate. Um, and he asked me to go down and I went down with a real good friend of mine, John Riley. And it's in my book. Uh, I let John write that chapter because he was the witness. And um, when you go down there, I wanted to talk to the amputees and I got into the rehab area and there were probably about eight people in that rehab area. And I started talking to them. And the first thing I always do, Chrissy, is I welcome them to the club, you know, because it is a club and, you know, I want to be lighthearted about it. And you find out, fortunately for Walter Reed, because of the service environment, whether it be Marines, Navy, Army, Air Force, there's a camaraderie and an esprit de corps that you don't have when I go and I see somebody at a hospital that's lost their leg or arm to cancer. And one of the greatest um, training sessions I ever had was eight hours, eight hours of training mandatory for me to return back to Walter Reed to become a peer visitor. And oh. you really learn a lot about what to say, what not to say. One of the most important things that I learned is how really well-meaning people, family members, great friends, even the doctors and nurses, set the bar low for people who are amputees. Hey, we're going to build a, uh, a ramp for you and your wheelchairs in the front of your house. The neighbors are getting together this Saturday. We're going to have it all built for you when you get out of the hospital. Well, I ran into a Marine captain that said, I wanted them to tear that thing down. 
That's not what I was looking for. That just gave me a sign of weakness. I'm going to learn how to get up those steps. And he did. And, and what happens is they love you so much. It's the empathy level that kicks in. So they set the bar low. And this guy had come into my, my room on the first day that I was really lucid out of ICU. And he set the bar load for me. And on top of that, he was a amputee from World War II. And I trusted that he was, you know, at 30 years as a one-armed man, he was an expert. And everything he told me, you're not going to be able to play golf again. You'll wreck your back. And by the way, forget about jogging. You know, jogging is, you know, you're, you're going to be so much weight on one side. You lost 21 pounds on the left side of your body. You're going to be off balance. You don't want to be jogging. You're going to mess up your, your back again and your spine. You can't be doing that. And, and you'll have a whole lot of pressure on your right leg because of that weight. All of these great ideas that seemed very sensible when you took a look at them. And I said, well, I won't be able to do that. Then he told me I'd have to get um, these uh, Velcro flap shoes that are pre-tied because you'll never be able to tie your shoes again. You'll never be able to tie your tie again. And I've been able to work that out because right after his visit, a guy by the name of Rocky Blyer came into my life by way of telephone. And here was a guy that I was friendly with, not a great friend, but he was a Vietnam vet that had no right being back in the NFL after he blew out his knee uh, over in Vietnam. And almost everybody except two doctors that were just on the cutting edge uh, said that he might be able to get back to play. Took him two years, an incredible rehab and some cadaver parts. But not only did he make it back into the NFL, but he's got four Super Bowl rings. So here was a guy that probably the only guy that could be the topper over this volunteer that came in, Frank, to tell me about, you know, setting the bar low. And Rocky came in and set it high and said, don't believe any of that, that stuff that he told you. And I challenged Rocky. I said, Rocky, let me tell you something. I said, experts built the tie. I said, I said, this guy's a little bit of an expert. I said, I think he knows a little more than you and I do about missing limbs, although you've been injured. But I think he knows a little more about that. And he should be an expert in this field. Rocky just shoots back at me. Let me tell you something about experts, Kevin. Experts built the Titanic and amateurs built the ark. Experts can be wrong. <laughs> and that's when he challenged me, you know, that I wouldn't quit on anything unless I tried it a dozen times. And that was just the breath of positive motivation that I needed. And you know what? I knew Rocky was going to follow up on me during the course of the next couple months. And I didn't want to disappoint him. It's never bad to have somebody in your corner rooting for you. Absolutely. Yeah. He was a tremendous angel for you, right? He really helped you shift your thinking, it sounds like, and motivated you internally. Yeah, he left he left our conversation with, I want you to set some goals and remember this. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Mm, that's something to remember. That's yeah, and and it's amazing. Well, all the things you did, you know, um, you know, golfing, um, half marathons, a marathon. You did a big race with you know, your grandson Jake, I think. Yeah, it's amazing all the things you've done that they said you'd never be able to do. I I have to remind myself from time to time that you know I'm missing an arm because I've I can see now that people that uh, were born without a limb or a, you know, underdeveloped limb of any kind have made unbelievable 
you know, progress in their lives with things they can do because they really didn't have to unlearn anything. And one of the great, you know, positives I had is I lost my non, um, you know, my non-dominant arm. I have my, I was right-handed. I didn't lose my right hand. And man, there are so many things I would have had to overcome if I had to go to my non-dominant arm and train it. And that brings up talking about motivation. I, I got a little story to tell you about the, a Marine captain. And he was the first triple amputee that I saw when I was doing some work for the um, peer pressure group, uh, peer pressure, I say the, the peer visitor group, uh, peer pressure and peer, peer visitor, that kind of fits in the same thing. But they asked me if I would help the guys because I couldn't get down the water, read three days a week to really be there for, you know, an individual that lost a limb because they would buddy you up with somebody. They said, we think you'd be better use because you're, you know, working for a fortune 500 company. If you could lead these guys into job interviews and, and go over their resumes and maybe do some role playing with them about how to do interviews because they've never done them before. So I said, great, you know, and so going great with this thing. I love getting to see these people, these guys and gals, by the way, you know, you don't think you're going to see wounded women. Well, guess what? Those IEDs, they have no, you know, they have no adversity of going against anybody, your Jeep, your, your dog, your, your, if you're a woman, if you're a man, they don't care. They just blow things up. So, you know, here I am and I'm having a great time and feeling very useful doing this. And I meet my first triple amputee. And I got to tell you, it took me back. It took me back a step. Uh, missing both knees, I'm missing both legs below the knee and missing his left arm and his left eye. Okay. And his left eye too. His left Whoa. eye. And I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect this guy to be Johnny Cheerleader. He just came out. His name was William. And I said, can I call you, Bill? He said, yes. And he came out. He was upbeat. I'm looking forward to these interviews. I'm looking forward to you schooling me. Oh, man, it's so great to get out of the hospital. See, they can't leave until they're released. And they're not released until they can get through daily living activities. And that's like becoming a, a little bit of an Eagle Scout. You got to know how to cook five meals. If you want to drive a car, there's a simulator car down there. They got to go through all these things. And then they're allowed to go home and go back to life as it will be in their new new life. So he asked me a question. He said, can I ask you a question before we get started? And I said, yeah. And he said, did you lose your dominant arm or your non-dominant arm? Oh, I said, I was really lucky. I lost my non-dominant arm. He smiled at me. He said, me too. Aren't we lucky? And I went, aren't we lucky? I'm not even in the same ballpark as you. Don't put me in your category. Gosh, darn, you just inspired me. And that's the kind of stuff that went on. But, you know, this guy was in that environment where he was being pumped up by the other guys in the rehab area. They didn't have friends and relatives come in and set the bar low. They were in an environment that set the bar high. Nice. And it's just, it's an exclusive environment. So that was one of the major things I learned, you know, about this as we go on is it's people that, don't really have the opportunity of seeing what someone can do, you know, when things get bad and what you can accomplish. You can't accomplish everything. You know, oh. I can't, I can't play the guitar. Although a guy tried to teach me with my left foot strumming and 
this hand up here doing the fret work. I said, if I was 30, I might try this again. I got too much life to live. There are things I want to do on my bucket list to learn this. But I think you can almost accomplish anything somehow, some way, uh, if you really want it. Yeah, perseverance is one of your key messages um, when you're speaking and in your book and your life, the way you live your life. Um, it's, it's just such a valuable tool, tool that people need support with um, to be reminded to persevere regardless. Well, perseverance in my life has a lot to do with when things really look glum, um, maybe even devastating. And that's when I fall back on my faith. Uh, I'm a Catholic and I went to 16 years of Catholic school. So I learned a very, we've had our problems in the Catholic faith. I think we all would say that. Um, however, I would say that the moral structure that I learned in all three institutions, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Villanova, Catholic college, that never changed. And that all fu functioned on being kind, being forgiven do the best that you can be and be humble. And I can't say that I lived those things uh, all my life, but every day now, again, as you reach, I'm 70 years old, you reach an age where you really want to embrace those things. You really want to say, this is what I want to do. But, you know, going back to your original question, every time I felt like devastation, is the tumor coming back? Every time I went up to Sloan Kettering for 12 years, and they wouldn't bless me that they, they had, you know, arrested this tumor for 12 years. Uh, every time I went up, I could, I could sense that it was back. I could feel it was back. I was paranoid. And every time I thought I could die from this, I'd say, so that's, I lived 10, 10 years. I lived eight years more than this thing. I could have died on the operating table. And why am I here anyway? It's to get to heaven. Okay. That's the ultimate goal. That's what we're aiming for. Number one. And that has brought me back to earth more than a few times mentally when things get tough. And I think that that's the key ingredient to having perseverance is know that there's a, a greater, you know, a light out there, that there's a greater uh, need, there's a greater motive, there's a greater target, there's a greater whatever that we're trying to get to. And this is just the game that we're playing here on earth. That's amazing. And um, I mean, you, you displayed that in so many instances in your life. And I know you speak about that. And, but I can't believe how hard that must have been every year after your surgery to go back and it's like, oh, God, please, you know, is it oh. back? Is it ba I mean, that must have been like a nightmare for you. I'm Irish, you know, and you know, we, we've been known to negotiate. And every time I got in that car to go up there with my dad, my dad drove every time. It became a good luck charm, you know, every time. And I, be looking up there and I'd say, dear God, just let me get through this next one. And I promise I'll pay it forward. And I, and I believe he has, you know, helped me in that, in that situation. And I believe that I'm here to pay it forward and I'm trying to do so and not an egotistical way. I'm trying to do so in a humble way. I, I want to go out there. I want to raise people's awareness, motivate them. And I want them to really know at the end of the day, what are you here for? You're here to be kind. You're here to have a better life. You're here to use the talents that God gave you. How are you going to, you know, um, how, how are you going to defend the talents if you don't use them when you're standing before your God someday? You know, and, and last but not least, one of the things that was asked of me about 30 years ago, and I'll never forget this question. If somebody asked you what you stood for 
Can you answer it in a paragraph? Wow. And so, you know, I'll leave that with some people. Just think about this. If I was to ask you in an interview, what do you stand for? What would be, you know, your priorities? Tell me what they are. And some people have never thought about that, you know, conceptually. They, it goes through their brain, but they've never said, here's what I really stand for. And this is what I'm going to stand by. This is what I stand for. And I will stand by this because I believe it's the truth. That's beautiful. And that's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves. And especially now, there's so many people out there suffering, you know, with what's going on with COVID, as well as, you know, with the culture divide and the anger. And you're all about empathy and kindness and um, inclusion and love. And what do you say to those people that are really out there suffering? Excuse me. I first of all, I have to tell them that I I am not the uh, you know I am not the guru who's figured all this out, and I'm perfect now because 16 years of playing football, I was conditioned, Chrissy, when hit, get up and hit back harder. I'm conditioned. I mean, I was you know almost hypnotized into that mode. So on top of being Irish, I developed this. When you get hit mentally, physically, or whatever, you get back up and you hit somebody harder. It's basically, you're going to do this to me, I'm going to make you regret it. And that anger has not quite left this body of mine completely. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better every day. Um, You know, somebody cut me off. I'd meet him at the next red light and get out with one arm, which I think scared the hell out of him, and challenge Mm -hmm. him. I don't do that anymore. There's too many guns out there. Oh, I, yeah. can tell, I can tell you 20 and 30 years ago, I would do that to challenge somebody because I would think back to having one of my grandkids in the car and you just je- not jeopardized me, but you jeopardized my grandkid, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's just not worth it. And here's the other very simple thing. Our brains can only handle one emotion at a time. So if you're into, you know, regret, if you're into uh, revenge, uh, if you're into anger, uh, there is no room in there for peace, for love, or growth. Okay, so why would you let somebody who you dislike, or somebody, you know, I wouldn't, I try to not use the word hate, but somebody that is right on that border that you could hate, but now you're saying it's a human being, I can, I can at least tolerate that person or what they did. Why would you let that patient person rent space in your head? There's so much life we had. If, if that person is renting space in your head on revenge, they're winning <laughs> because it's keeping peace and love and all that good stuff out of your brain. That is a very good point. And it's true because they can monopolize, monopolize us yeah. in our thinking and distract us and get us off our path, um, let alone not be pleasant to be around, right? And, <laughs> right? And, and back to getting up. You know, that's one of the things I've always admired about you is to get back up no matter what. And, um, and I know we've talked about this in the past. And I believe when we do that, God, life rewards us. You know, there's always something that happens that's for getting up, for having that courage, for taking that stand and not giving up and keeping with that hope. I think 
life gives us, God gives us, our gifts come back stronger, our passion is is fuller, and um, there's surprises waiting ahead for us. Yeah, so one of the things that I've learned over time, and, you know, people will say to me, why did I lose a child? Why did I have cancer and lost my job? Oh, boy, these are some terrible situations. Why did, you know, on my marriage of 20 years go down the tubes and, you know, I found out that my spouse was cheating on me, which hurts worse, you know, and all I can tell them is I had those same thoughts about why did I get a sarcoma, the one in a million people get. Well, you know what? That wasn't my fault. That was in my DNA. So I couldn't really blame myself. Now, if I had taken a steroid over my NFL career or collegiate career, which I was advised to do on several occasions by trainers and people that were in the gym, this will help you build muscle. This will help you get bigger. I would have said, boy, what if I did use those and it caused the tumor? I would have blamed myself. So I got over that. But, you know, then my divorce came. I felt well worse about that than I did about losing my arm because I knew I had some culpability. But I also learned that God has three answers to all of our questions about why or three answers to all of our pleas as to please give me peace or please give me a solution to my problem. He says, yes, no, that's not good for you. We're not right now. And my arm situation was one of those things, not right now. Chrissy, this has turned into the biggest blessing I've ever had in this life. God knows if I would have ever gone, if what would have happened, even if I'd have played in the NFL and became a star and maybe got messed up, you know, going down that trail of maybe steroids or drugs or continued with my alcoholic ways or whatever and all those things. No, he, he was watching, but he, I'm going to give you, you know, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, 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 you know, problem to leap over. There are barriers that are going to be in life. That's why you're down there. But I'm going to see how you react to them. And here I am, you know, he's saying, I'm here for you. Just keep connected. I often, you know, talk to people, especially the kids today, because they get onto this. I'll say, I just did it at one of the Catholic schools, Catholic boys schools. And I said, you see this thing right here? It's the greatest technical invention man has ever made except for the, maybe the rocket that took our people to the moon. And I said, it does everything. But you know what? If it's not plugged in, it's a paperweight. So Jesus in a parable talked about, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I use that to say, what he's trying to say there is just stay connected to me. I know I'm going to give you barriers. I know you're not going to be thinking about me every day for every minute, or even maybe you're only going to think of me about that once in a week that you go to, go to church. But that's okay. Just stay connected. And I'm trying to get through to these kids that if you stay connected, he's going to be there for you and he's going to help you to blossom. He's the nourishment that helps you climb up out of these doldrums that help you get over the barriers. And then you don't use God or your vision of God for that reason. You're going to go down the slippery slope to what else will take that away from drugs, the alcohol, sex, those sort of things that you try to make, you know, your life better with. And I just think it's a simple look at 
why are you here? Stay connected to whatever religious belief you have and trust that the man upstairs is going to do the right thing for you. But you have to make the right decisions when given the opportunity. Right. So true. Um, and, and if people could be reminded about that more often, that would be great that they have it within them to make the correct decisions, you know, just like the power of the human spirit, you know, um, and the profound courage. Um, of I think that's something that you and I agree on this. The human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. Right. I Yes, definitely. And, and the and, goodness. And that statement really needs to, you know, you really need to have that sink into your brain because we really are capable of things that um, somebody would say, well, you can't do that, you know? And then you see some 80 year old woman lifting up the end of a small car because her stepson or grandson is trapped under it when, you know, the uh, uh, jack slipped or whatever. Where'd that come from? I don't know, but you know, we can do extraordinary things when we're put in the position that we believe we can. Yes, absolutely. And I know that's a, a prevalent message throughout everything you talk about and write about. And and also the goodness that we all have that profound goodness within ourselves. And um, and that's another piece of, of what you represent out there, looking for the goodness for them, not just you but definitely you, but your enemies even, right? People that uh, rub you the wrong way, try to find what is it, what's something really nice about them, right? Versus (laughs) wanting to get into a fist fight or something, right? You don't have to love them. You don't even have to like them, but you need to treat them with respect because they're God's creatures. Yes, and and definitely. And they have a soul. They definitely have a soul. That's exactly it. And they're made in the, and we're all made in the image and likeness of God. So, Yes. You know, he doesn't make junk. We might turn it into junk, but we do that on our own. Yeah, and, and the whole thing where you think that what happened to you with your arm and your shoulder and ribs is the greatest blessing. I mean, just such a testament to that power of the human spirit, you know, and the immense courage. And it's true. You're out there. You're like a modern day prophet. You know, you're out there. You're lifting up people everywhere you go. It's really it's amazing. We need more people like you out in the world doing that. Um, and I just thank you. Well, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of people. I really believe Chrissy, there's a lot of people that are doing it. And I really believe that a lot of of those people discovered in themselves, they have, uh, you know, the human spirit in them because of the pandemic, the pandemic, again, you take a look at things who would ever wish that on anybody, but there are some people that are coming out of this stronger, uh, more uh, uh, goal-oriented it now that they saw what life is like when it's not normal. Sometimes we take normal for granted, and that will teach you not to take normal for granted. And, you know, some of the other things that are going on in this world, it's just crazy in this country that we've had these fires, that, you know, out in the, in the West, in California, that are unprecedented. Floods with some of these hurricanes that we've had. And then the pandemic on top of that the opioid addiction. It seems like it's hitting us all at once, but there are good people in this world that are trying to rectify all of those situations, even with the climate change. Right, we need to give them more exposure because I agree with you. There are a lot of lovely people that are under the radar doing some really amazing things for humanity. 
and um, we, we need we need to hear from them. So we want you on the show too. So let us know because you're insightful players in your life as well. Um, so yes, we have to really cling to that. Look for the goodness look, and go with the light. Go with the light, you know, and pay attention to the yearnings in our heart because God put them there. And that's what's going to help heal um, our world by having you really embody that and embrace that. And share it and share it just like Kevin is. Kevin's a great role model for that. You know, and if more people could go inside and look for the blessing, what goodness will come out of it, just as you did with your your cancer, as well as the alcoholism and any other challenge you had with your marriage. Um, it, it's a wonderful thing to train yourself to start doing that, because if you ask, what is the blessing in this? Sometimes you get those answers early on versus a few years later. Right. Have you noticed that? Yeah, that can happen. There's no doubt about it. But I, I, I just really believe that having a positive attitude when you wake up and, you know, I went out this morning and it, there's a little bit of fall nip in the air and it just brings back happy memories of, you know, going to school, the happy memories of playing football and weather like this. And it was it was really fun on a Friday night, you know, in high school, Friday night lights. You bring back those kind of memories and we can still make those memories today if we just you know, take the positive attitude when we wake up in the morning. And the other thing that I think causes this stress in our lives is I'm convinced now that there's nobody that works harder or is busier than the American citizen. We are obsessed with hard working uh, mm -hmm. to get to where. And we've got to step back and say, we've got to take breaks in this stressful life we had to pull ourselves aside. And whether it's meditation that you do, or, you know, reading just to get a piece and just sit in the surroundings when there's no noise and feel yourself breathe a little bit and figure out just what an incredible experience it is just to be alive and the things we take for granted, breathing, being able to blink our eyes, eating, you know, all that kind of stuff, being able to move our limbs when we want to. Uh, there are people that can't do some of those things. And we take them for granted. We need to step back and just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a break here. Some of the things that I'm really stressed out about are going to change tomorrow. We had a saying in my Fortune 500 company when things would get really tough and there was really a, um, a big decision to make. And was this one the right one? And I remember one of the guys stepped back and said, hey, why are we getting so upset about this? What are they going to do if we fail? Send us to Vietnam? And, you know, it, it was kind of a, a funny saying, because, like, yeah, I mean, what's the worst that can happen if this fails? And then think about this. Think about something that you really worried about that kept you up at night within the last year that is just a footnote and will actually disappear like disappearing ink over a period of time. It's amazing what we worry about that we think is going to have some kind of life of its own and follow us for the rest of our lives. Right. And that's where your faith comes in a lot. You know, um, you, you, you turn it over, you surrender and in um, gratitude, which you're so grateful for so many things. And I think if, um, I think gratitude is the greatest prayer of all. And you model that so beautifully, you know, especially when you're worried, you know, just like you suggest, what do you have to be grateful for today? You know, look at being alive, you know. Look at the smell, you know, the smell of the air, the sound of the birds. Um, my gosh, there's so much to be grateful for. And 
I think the pandemic is helping people be more reflective. What do you think? Well, I think it's made them realize how much socialization means to us uh, in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the lack of that socialization has left to a lot of people depressed more than they were or for the first time ever in their lives. You know, I was fortunate. I've got 11 grandkids that live pretty close to me. And anytime that I was feeling down for a day and it happens to everybody where there's nothing like going to something that, you know, makes you happy. And there isn't right. anything that makes me happier than being with one of my grandkids. It's one of the few things in my life that I can tell you is unconditional love. Um, I don't say that in like the defense of, uh, or not in defense, but like, I love my kids too, but not like I love my grandkids, you know, you're not <laughs> going to spoil them and they don't think you can do any wrong. And, and they say the funniest things. I, I have one, and I'll tell you this quick story, just a couple months ago, I'm out with uh, my grandson, uh, Georgie, and um He's nine years old and he's he's Yogi Berra reincarnated. He's in the right church, but the wrong pew. And he has three older brothers to deal with who he's constantly trying to compete against, you know. And um, so we went out a couple months ago and I said, we're going to do some errands. And he's always effervescent. He makes he just loves life, makes me happy being around him. And I said, we're going to go to a couple stores. You're going to have to wear a mask. He says, OK, pop up. So about the third store we come out of and he says, pop up, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, when you fart, it goes through your underwear and your pants and you can still smell it. How are these masks helping us? And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to ask Dr. Fauci. I have no idea. And, you know, one of the things I want to, you know, prove in this point is they think about something and then they think of the end result. Their minds aren't cluttered yet with all the things that come into play in our minds. Should I even say that? I don't know. Before we get to the end result, they're like, hey, what's going on here? I have a question. And they get right to the, you know, the, the crux of what the issue is. And yeah. they're always thinking that way. So they make life very, very, you know, enjoyable. Yeah, that, that, that's a great story. And it's really funny. And you're right. And, and too bad we, we lose that when we get older. Um, it's really too bad. So, well, I want to make sure people know about your book and because that's a really must read. But before I do that, I just want to read a quote of Kevin's from my book, which typifies who he is, especially if you're feeling down. He suggests give other people something to smile about every day, Um, especially days when you feel like you have nothing to smile about yourself. And the impact of that, Kevin, is one one I'll give you I'll give you a chance to smile on this. Ask me how I'm feeling. How are you feeling? If I was any better, I'd be twins. <laughs> That's a good one. That's that will one. make anybody that you run up against you can see is having a bad day smile. That's that's a great that's a great response. So um so yeah we always have to lift each other up. Um, and you're so good at that. So why don't you tell everyone about your book? Um, I have it right over here. Do you have it handy? Yeah, it's kind of the rest of the story. Um, it's a really easy read. There's 31 chapters in there. They're all short. You can pick them and choose them. But it goes through the ups and downs in life and kind of is a roadmap of never, ever give up, no matter what the situation. And um, 
when before I wrote the book, I promised myself I was going to be as honest and open as possible with it. And you know from reading it, I was. There's some things you don't like to admit in your life that uh, you have problems with, and and I did in the book and told you how to get over them. I believe that uh, uh, unless you're you know telling the truth, if you're fabricating or you're embellishing or trying to round out whatever problem you're having, you're never going to solve it. Right. Yes. I love your transparency. It's so inspiring. Yes. This is a must read. I highly That's recommend. the word I was looking for. Transparency. Be transparent. Right. Right. And vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable with each other, which, um, yeah, you're, you're a great role model on some, so many levels. And I, I appreciate this book so much. I think everybody should read this book. It's really great. Um, I think it will give you a lot of insight for yourself and inspiration. So, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today to wrap up our this wonderful interview with you? Yeah, the thing that I guess I want to leave you with is don't let uh, negativity rent space in your head. And I think the best way to do that is just trying to do positive things. Say hello to people that maybe got their eyes down or try to make somebody's day uh, just by talking to them. And every once in a while, we get pestered by that person we really don't have time for, but taking maybe two minutes and just hearing them out, you may not only make their day, you might make their week. Just be kind to one another and try to pay it forward. Thank you, Kevin. That's really great. Um, yes, go out there and put a smile on someone else's face, just like Kevin said, and you'll feel a whole lot better yourself. So thank you for joining and we'll see you next time. Thank you for watching and listening to the Insightful Player Podcast with your host, Chrissy Carew. Chrissy is also the author of the book, Insightful Player, featuring over a dozen stories where football pros lead a bold movement of hope. You can learn more about her book, Chrissy's coaching programs, and more episodes of the show at www.theinsightfulplayer.com. We hope to turn everyone into insightful players in their own lives. You can also watch other episodes on YouTube and listen through all the major podcast platforms. Thank you for your comments, reviews, and sharing the show with others.